And we'll invite the rest of us to take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and I invite you to read in unison with me, beginning in verse 20 through the end of the chapter. You'll take your Bibles and read with me together in unison, beginning in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou givest to me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them my name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning, and we're going to be looking at another one of the marks of a church, and that is the mark of hope, the mark of hope. I think one of the strongest characteristics that marked early Christians in contrast to their pagan counterparts was their hope. They faced life, suffering, and death in a way unheard of in the ancient world. Now we may think we have trials and difficulties, but they can barely be compared to the trials and the burdens and the persecutions that was put on first century Christians. And yet they had hope, and to maintain this practice, Paul reminded the believers at Thessalonica that they sorrow not even as others which have no hope. The ancient world was characterized, and even still today in some places, with loud wailing and bitter cries would mark the death of those who knew nothing of the saving grace of God. Someone has contrasted the attitudes of Christians and pagans in relationship to hope. They said this, The contrast between the gloomy despair of the heathen and the triumphant hope of Christian mourner is nowhere more forcibly brought out than by their monumental inscriptions. The contrast of the tombs, for instance, in the Appian Way, above and below ground, has often been dwelt upon. One the, uh, one the, one hand, on the one hand, there is a dreary wail of despair, the effect of which is only heightened by the pomp of outward splendor from which it issues. 
On the other, the exalting psalm of hope, shining the more brightly in all the ill-written, ill-spelt records midst the darkness of subterranean caverns. If you know anything about the persecution of first century Christians in Rome, all you have to do is look up the Roman catacombs where so many Christians suffered for the name of Christ. Hope is the essential need of human life. All of us, I think, would say we face dark times and inevitably face the fear of death. Men have devised all kinds of ideas to cope with death and the future. Some deny any sort of future life. It was the ancient Epicureans who taught that at death the souls of men consisted of atoms simply dispersed into the universe and all consciousness or sensation ceased. This gave the Epicureans a mind-over-matter mentality in facing death. Others craft clever ideas which give them a false hope of the future. It was a number of years ago that Heaven's Gates cult in California committed mass suicide because they had convinced themselves that to to end life would join them to an alien spaceship that followed in the wake of Hale-Bopp Comet. They could all make their lives, uh, they could all take their lives because of the false hope of joining a UFO. Now many people, if not most, have a sense of wishful thinking and that they will go to heaven when they die. They have no basis for that kind of hope, only a sense of a power of positive thinking. And they convince themselves that they're good enough to go to heaven because they do not engage in any of the major sins. But this kind of hope bears no resemblance to the biblical concept of hope. It's more akin to a wish wish than a solid reality or expectation. And this is what we need to keep in mind here in John chapter 17 in this high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of his followers. Certainly this prayer is filled with instruction. But most of all, it is a prayer for those who are in Christ. Jesus' will or prayer on behalf of the redeemed is for eternal hope. They would not have to face the future in the same way as the pagans that were, uh, they were surrounded by. They would face it with confidence that their lives would not end with this life, but would continue in a glorious fulfillment in the presence of Christ forever. And this hope consists of a confident expectation, which is born out of genuine relationship with Christ and nurtured in the promises of God. Now, the biblical usage of hope does not parallel the common usage of hope in our day. When we use the word hope, we think uh, is as, it, as more of a wish uh, that may not have any ground or basis for realization. And I can say, well, I hope it does not rain this week, but I have no promise. I have no assurance or confidence that my hope will ever be fulfilled. It's merely a wish based on my personal desire. But notice here that Jesus... In verse uh, verse 24, 
Jesus does not say, Father, I wish that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Now, some may give it that meaning, the meaning to will, I will. But when God wills something, there's no doubt about it coming to pass. And so the Bible speaks of a hope being focused in on the Lord. As the Lord is faithful and sure, even so our hope in Him has sure confidence. In Psalm 38, verse 15, the psalmist addresses sorrow and declares, For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Another psalm expresses it like this, Happy is the man that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Jeremiah expresses this idea when he cries, Thou art my hope in the day of evil. In the New Testament, hope is considered one of the chief Christian virtues along with faith and love in 1 Corinthians 13. And after describing the peace of justification, Paul expresses the confidence in hope as believers face the future. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God in Romans 5. He explains later in Romans 8, for we are saved by hope which implies that salvation has been bestowed in Christ and is characterized by a hope for the future. Christ in you is the hope of the future revelation of God, the glory of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Paul stated that Christ, which is our hope, who has given to us hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, so that we might await the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Christ Jesus. None of these verses give us the idea of wishful thinking, of something that may or may not transpire. Instead, hope is a solid assurance, the great confidence that what God has done on behalf of the redeemed through Jesus Christ, he will fulfill to the uttermost. It's a confidence, and it's this confidence that allows you and me as Christians to face all the uncertainties of life and of death. And so hope still marks those who are in Christ. It's not a hope of wishful thinking, nor a hope spurred by political or economic changes. And we heard that a lot in some of the more recent elections uh, and the speeches that were made. It's not that kind of hope. Hope springs from the experience of the gospel of grace, and it has its foundation in the strong character of our God. So how does the hope mark the church? Note the first considerations of hope. The prayer of Christ identifies who has a right to face life and death with hope. Multitudes cling to a false hope, nurtured by lifeless religion. Everyone does not have hope. You only have to go and talk to the people uh, in your own neighborhoods, in your own workplace, and know that not everybody has hope. The message of the gospel gives hope, though. Hope to the hopeless. For our hope is found in Christ alone. Father, I will that they also, which thou hast given me, be with me where I am. I want you to consider three considerations here of of hope described by our Lord. First of all, it's marked by character. 
hope is marked by Christian character. He says, Father, I will that they also... It's the key words there, the key phrases, they also. It refers back to our context. And we have seen that this is a prayer for those who have eternal life. And since Jesus is no more in the world, but ascends to the Father, he prays that his disciples might be kept by the Father, back in verses 11 and 12. And then he begins to describe the marks of character of those whom the Father keeps in verses 13 through the end of the chapter. And so he prays that they also, that is, they also, in addition to the twelve apostles, might be with him. Who are the they also of this verse? They are the disciples of Jesus Christ in every age. They are those who have come to faith in Christ alone for salvation. There are particular characteristics that will identify the disciples of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus Christ amidst the world. Uh, They are the ones who have the joy of Christ radiating in them, back in verse 13. They are hated by the world because of the holiness of their lives. Uh, They are described as those who are in the world but not of the world, in verses 14 through 16. And the work of sanctification by the truth of God's word continues in their lives so that they drink deeply of the wells of divine truth, applying the word of God to their daily lives, verse 17. They have a sense of mission which characterizes them, a desire to tell other sinners of the life they have in Christ. We see it in verse 18. They have a spirit of oneness with others who have been redeemed through the blood and justified through the righteousness of Christ. We saw that in verses 20 through 23. And along with faith, they have the wonderful attitude of hope and the gracious spirit of love showing through their lives. We see that in the last Three verses. Now we must never think of a Christian as someone who merely takes a profession or simply aligns himself with a particular church. A Christian will have the character of a Christian. Yes, he's still making progress. He still has areas of weakness. He certainly has not perfected all these characteristics. But the direction of his life gives evidence that Christ has done a saving work in him, reproducing his holiness and righteousness and sanctifying power. It is this kind of person who has true hope in facing the future. It's marked by character. Secondly, we see it's assured by salvation. The next phrase here is the first clause of our text that points to the divine act related to salvation. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me. The emphasis is the repetition of what Christ has already prayed. They also whom thou hast given me. Same word, same verb tense tense used in verse 2. That he should have eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And then again in verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. And he makes the same statement once again in verse 9. He specifically prays for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Jesus uses the same phrase to refer to the authority of God the Father, uh, that God the Father gave Christ over all mankind, verse 2. And to the holy name which the Father gave Christ to guard the redeemed in verses 11 and 12. 
And the word refers to something that is bestowed upon one person to another person. And in this case, Jesus refers to the authority and the name of the Father bestowed upon him using the perfect uh, tense verb to describe the permanency of such a bestowal. It's the same word which he uses to refer to those identified in this chapter as disciples being bestowed upon Christ. The ones the Father gave to the Son, He in turn has given eternal life, manifested, revealed the character of God in all of His saving power, and kept them for eternity. Now we can try to argue our way around the plain phrase, they also whom they, thou hast given me. We could say, well, that refers only to the twelve. The twelve apostles. But again, the context of verses 20 through 26 will not allow that. Since it specifically refers to also which shall believe on me through their word. We said last week that their word is the apostles' word. And they which shall believe on me talks about future believers. Or we could say that the Father gave them to the Son after those individuals made a decision to believe. But again, the context will not allow this since he's referring to a divine act which preceded human activity. On the one hand, and a futuristic look to all of the redeemed. On the other, the heart of this chapter expresses divine sovereignty. It's in this assurance of salvation that we find Christian hope. Peter, whose first epistle resounds with the theme of hope, says in 2 Peter 1, Verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly unto the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The confidence for facing the future, including death, comes because we know that we have been chosen by God for eternity. How do we know? Because of the evidence of his calling is seen in his sanctifying work in our character and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. So we find here that we're marked by character, assured by salvation, and the consideration of evidence by ownership. Sometimes a personal pronoun carries a great deal of weight. And such is the case with the pronoun here, me which describes the ownership of Christ over all the Father has given to him and he has consequently redeemed. It's that sense of being owned by Christ that gives us hope. We belong to him. He's redeemed us by his own blood from our slavery and bondage to sin. He's raised us from the dead. He indwells us by the Holy Spirit. He's laid his claim upon us as the Lord of all. And with that kind of assurance, we can have hope. It's hope spurred on by the belonging to Christ. There was a young man, a teenager perhaps, a young boy, whose dad would drop him off at the family farm 20 miles from his home. And uh, it's kind of a desolate place. During those days, the acres of woods and fields along the way, but he would spend the day working on a two or three acre uh, Garden. I don't know if uh, parents would even have their kids do that these days. 
but, uh, or at least leave them alone. But as the sun began to set, this young man had the confidence, he had the assurance that he would not be spending that night alone in the fields. You know why? His hope was anchored in the fact that he belonged to his dad. And he never worried that his dad would not pick him up or somehow get too busy and forget about him. He would toil in the heat of the sun with confidence that when darkness approached, his father would come and get him. You know, you and I can toil throughout life with the assurance that as the sunset approaches, our Lord will carry us to himself forever. What is our comfort in life and death? What is our comfort in life and in death? I like this answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I like that answer to the question, what is our comfort in life and death? So those are the considerations of hope. Notice, secondly, the content, the content of hope. Our hope as Christians is not a lifeless dream. We're not just expressing a vain idea. Oh, I have hope. Without having hope, meaning anything. No, our hope has content. It has teeth, if you please. It, has a, it is a substantial hope. It is so evident in the words of our Lord when he says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Hope refers to a relationship of being with Christ and abode and an abode of being where he is. Look at those two figures here. First of all, focused on a relationship. The Psalms again echoes with the truth that our hope is to be in the Lord. That is, in the sphere of a living relationship to Him. For in Thee, O Lord, do I hope. Psalm 38, 15. My hope is in Thee. Psalm 39, verse 7. Hope Thou in God. Psalm 42, verse 5 and 11. For Thou art my hope, O Lord God. Psalm 71, verse 5. Hope is not a warm feeling. It's a confidence that's ongoing relationship with Christ. I will that they also be with me. There's a tenderness of that relationship found here in John chapter 17. It's a relationship of a son with a father. Bringing into the father's presence the son's relationship with the redeemed. The quality of his saving work is eternal. The character of it is relational. Our Lord prays that the disciples might be with me as he returns to the father's abode. So I believe we have to go back to the whole work of salvation and consider that in saving us, the Lord has reconciled himself to us. We who were enemies of God have been brought into a living relationship with him. But is it for only this life? 
If this is all there is, then the eternal value of the death of Christ sufficed for only a few centuries. The promises of the gospel tell us that Christ was raised from the dead, so shall we be raised. As Christ ascended to the Father, so shall we enter into the Father's presence in bodies prepared for eternity. And what is that promise? Is it that we will be carrying on some kind of gigantic party up there in heaven, flitting about the clouds and visiting anyone that we can think of that we want to see we haven't seen for a long time? The great hope is that we have, is that we're going to see him. We're going to see him as he is. As it says in 1 John chapter 3, we will enter the realm of eternal, uh, eternal and behold the Lamb of God who took away our sins. And along with the angels and the saints of old, we'll look upon our Lord and we'll cry, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5.12 And we'll cast our gaze upon the throne of God, in reverent relationship and holy humility, crying out, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Revelation 5.13 In the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And that's why he would write, For me to live is Christ." To die is gain. It's that wondrous gain of being in the presence of Jesus Christ that sustained the apostles in the trials of life. He knew that if a rebellious mob took his life, he would be instantly ushered into the living, visible presence of Jesus Christ forever. That was his hope. It was that confident expectation that enabled him to sing cheerfully in the face of death. It's a kind of hope that belongs only to those who know Jesus Christ and his saving power. Now we need to look close at Stephen's mighty servant sermon, the defense of the gospel before the Jewish mob to get an idea of the hope we have in our relationship with Christ. Remember, Stephen was facing an anger, the anger of the crowd for the purity of the gospel, and he looked up into heaven and he found that God had pulled back the curtain for a moment, and so he cried, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And the mob began to drive him out of the city and they stoned him. But his sweet knowledge of hope and being ushered into the presence of Christ gave him courage. So he could pray, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now that is hope. Notice not only the idea of of here... uh, of the relationship, but notice directed to an abode. While the content of hope points not only to the relationship with the one who's reconciled us to himself, it also talks about our eternal home. Father, I will they also be with me where I am. Here our Lord refers to an actual place. Heaven is real. It's a real place, the place where he was preparing to go as he prayed this high priestly prayer. Where is that place? We know, of course, it's heaven. Jesus had already told his disciples of heaven in John 14. 
He explained that he's going ahead of them to his father's house in which there are many mansions or dwelling places. The responsibility of preparing for the redeemed to enter heaven had been placed upon the strong shoulders of our Lord. He prepares a place for us. And and what a place that must be if he's preparing it. No more sin. No more death. No more disease. No more unholiness. No more sorrow. That's heaven. But heaven is not only the absence of certain things, it's the positive presence of others. There's the throne of God. There's the Lamb. There are the delights of an eternal bounty found for those prepared by the saving work of Christ. It's a place of no more night, but of eternal brightness. The radiant glory of our God. It's a place that is filled with the magnificent praise and worship of our great God. Those who have true hope in Christ find their delight and experience a little bit of heaven while on earth. Living in the presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit, basking in the wonders of eternal glory of our Lord, expressed, expresses our love and adoration of Godhead, and the praise helps us to understand the reality of our hope. And if these kinds of things have no importance or value in this life, it's likely that you've never known the saving power of Jesus Christ in your life. Just as faith and love are experiences, so is hope. It finds its keenest expression in our worship, in our meditation of character, in the ways, uh, ways of our God. And it's in this content of hope that has nurtured multitudes of believers along the waning days of life. I recall uh, reading about William Carey, the pioneer Baptist missionary to India, facing death with his sense of hope. And I want you to notice what he said in two letters written in the last years of his life. It expresses well this well-worn life. He said, the repeated attacks I have had, namely eight or nine within the last 12 months, have been in have much enfeebled me and warned me to look forward to a change. This change through the mercy of God I do not fear. The atoning sacrifice made by our Lord on the cross is the ground of my hope of acceptance, pardon, justification, sanctification, and endless glory. And then two years later, he's still being alive, he's still alive through growing, though growing more and more infirm to his sisters. He wrote what is described in his own words as the last letter you will all likely receive from me, thy will of the will of the Father be done. Adieu till we meet in a better world. So we have the considerations of hope. We have the content of hope. And notice finally the course of hope. The course. Much confusion has affected Christian minds about what goes on in heaven. And this kind of comes from an endless Uh, endless songs written to pluck the heartstrings with emotion. But these songs many times are void of biblical content. There's really a simplicity in how our Lord describes what believers will do in heaven. Certainly he did not give a total picture of heaven within the scope of this verse, but he shows us what we could aptly call the course or the direction of hope. Notice, first of all, an eternal engagement of activity. 
An eternal engagement of activity. Uh, heaven is not an idle place. Not going to sit around on clouds and plucking harps. You have ideas that you'll be bored in heaven. Oh, that's going to be boring. Then think again. Our minds cannot begin to fathom the profound magnificence of that abode, that dwelling place, that place that God has prepared for us, Christ has prepared for us, and the fullness of our relationship with the Lord. Jesus' own words help us understand the eternal engagement of activity which we're going to enjoy. Notice here it says, Father, I will that they also may behold my glory which thou hast given me. You see, it's a glimpse of glory that sustained Stephen, as we talked about earlier. It was this glimpse of glory that had given courage to countless martyrs as they face the, uh, in the face of suffering, along with the multitude of believers facing the normal course of death. But here, we do not see a glimpse of glory. We're beholding the fullness of divine glory. The word implies that we see visibly and perceive with all our sentences senses and comprehend with all our minds the radiance of divine glory we can compare it like this suppose you were in the depths of a cave i don't know if you've ever been in some of the caves around our country that are very interesting to go into but what if you were in a cave that was totally dark you say i wouldn't go (laughs) i'm afraid of the dark and i'm afraid of close places well Let's just imagine, though, if you were in this cave at a point and you're groping about and you suddenly see a small shaft of light. And it's faint, but it's the most wonderful thing that you could imagine thinking at that time. Yes, there's some light up ahead. And the closer you get to it, the brighter it seems. But it's still only a slight crevice allowing the rays of the sun to penetrate into the darkness of that cave and once you find your way out of the cave you emerge in, from that faint light into the brilliance of noonday sun and you're relieved and you're amazed at the brightness of the sun compared with the, the faintness of that light that you had known in the cave you see our living in this world can be compared to sometimes groping in the darkness When Christ saves us, we find in Him a light in our darkness. And the more we grow in Him, the brighter that light of His glory appears. But in this life, it's still faint by comparison to the brilliance that's going to be displayed when we leave this world and we go and gaze upon His glory in heaven. Our whole being will be consumed by the beauty and the holiness of His glory. This implies that heaven, in heaven we're going to utilize our senses in ways incomprehensible to us right now. We will see as we've never seen before. We will know as we've never known before. We will hear the glories of God proclaimed as we've never imagined hearing them. And our minds will comprehend what is present beyond us, at the present beyond us. John spoke of this beholding Christ in all his glory, seeing him as he is, being like him who is the first fruit of the resurrection. He adds one thing that I believe we should think upon. We have the hope of being with Christ and seeing him as he is in all his glory. And we cannot be casual 
about our Christian life. He said in 1 John 3, 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You see, the hope we have in Christ, if it's really true hope, it's going to bring about a greater purity and holiness in our personal lives. But then also notice the eternal foundation of love. The gift of hope for us has its foundation in the Father's love for the Son. He says here, For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Do we even remotely understand the depth of the love of the Father that he had for his Son? It will bring the glories of eternity to enlarge our minds and provide the time for us to begin to grasp the fullness of the Father's love for his own Son. Imagine for a moment the great love that you as parents have for your children. You know, in human terms, that love is profound. It's indescribable. But we are sinners, affected by the fall in our mind and in our affections. We love, but the capacity of our love and affection is finite. It's limited by the weaknesses of our senses. We cannot even begin to be compared to the infinite love of the Father and what He had for His Son. And to think that the Father who loved His Son with such a perfect and infinite love would send Him to this earth to suffer the humiliation of the cross for sinners ought to give us hope. Knowing that the Father loved His Son so much, yet in redeeming love He willingly poured out His eternal wrath upon His Son so that we could fill our minds with hope. It's in this comprehending of the Father's love of the Son that we begin to see the depth of His love for you and for me, for reconciling you and me to Himself. The Father accepted the righteousness of His Son, the Son of His infinite love on behalf of us who were His enemies. The Father's justice was satisfied by the bloody death of His perfect Son, the Son of His eternal love, so that Condemned sinners might be pardoned and brought into sonship. It's in the Father's profound love for the Son that we see His love for us. That's our hope. Do you have a sense of that hope in welling up in your heart this morning? I can't put it there. Nor can your efforts and just positive thinking. You can't just think, well, I'm going to be more positive. That won't do it. Hope is a grace. It's a wonderful gift of assurance that comes by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Hope can only be found one place. Listen again to William Carey as he states very clearly, the atoning sacrifice made by our Lord on the cross is the ground of my hope of acceptance, pardon, justification, sanctification, and endless glory. I wonder, can we say in the depths of our heart, if not audibly, at least say it in your heart, amen. Can you say amen with William Carey? If not, then I would urge you to flee to Christ. Find through repentance and faith in him a hope that does not disappoint. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven,